Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, and in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today, we'll be continuing our series on unpacking sovereignty. This is number uh, six in our series, and we'll be taking a closer look at the time period from 1820 to 1892, with an emphasis on the four townships and how that affected the tribe and its relationship with the state moving forward. Our guests are Professor Harold Prince, uh, who's an expert in Wabanaki uh, history, tribes know him really well, and uh, Dr. Darren Ranko, a member of the Penobscot Nation, is an associate professor of anthropology and chair of Native American programs at the University of Maine, and uh, Dr. Michael Pauling, an associate professor of history and Native American studies at the University of Maine, and his research interests include the ethno-history of the Wabanaki people of Northern New England and Eastern Canada in the 19th century. His forthcoming book is on Wabanaki waterscapes in the 19th century. I invited him on the show because of his work on the 2000 book, Wabanaki Homeland and the New State of Maine, 1820 Journal, and Plans and Survey of Joseph uh, Treat. So I would like to re-emphasize the discussion we had from our last show so let's begin with Indians not taxed in the constitution as opposed to those under guardianship. Uh, why did they not say under guardianship instead of Indians not taxed? And I will throw that question to uh, Dr. Ranko. Great, thanks Donna. And really a great pleasure uh, to be here again. And I can't believe we hadn't had Micah in before. Uh, He's a great, uh, a great expert and, and understands the historiography for this period in, in a way that I don't think anyone else does. Well, yeah, and I, I mentioned last time that the original state constitution and talking about you know, electors who can vote were mentioned in, in that section as not being able to vote uh, under the category Indians not taxed. And this actually um, is, a, is a formulation that connects to uh, federal Indian law concepts that recognize uh, inherent tribal sovereignty because it, it recognizes, and this is from you know, quotes from much later on, starting in the 1940s, where, where um, federal Indian law as a concept gets regularized uh, by the Department of Interior, the solicitor's office. And that, can, you know, that connection is, is very much a, a recognition that Indians not tax means that they are not a part of the public uh, and, and uh, republic of the uh, U.S. and the state of Maine in that context. It's language that also appears in the in the in the uh, Constitution and five other states, um, four other states. My apologies, state constitutions. And so it's a form of recognition of separateness and sovereignty uh, in its own right. But I also think you know including that. Um, is more and more I'm understanding this as a, uh, while a great uh, recognition, first and foremost, of our sovereignty and separateness as tribal nations, 
it, it, I believe the language is also included or allowed for the kinds of land speculation and, and seizure of tribal uh, lands that um, make it just that much easier uh, as sort of not fully members of, of the, the state as voting, um, as, as, um, because the state, as we, we mentioned last time, quickly moves to, even with this language in the constitution, quickly move, moves to not only uh, survey lands and pass laws that are um, quite restrictive uh, of tribal uh, people in life, um, but also it's very clear that this, this allows sort of a, a less arduous process, like by, by putting, you know, native people, you know, they don't have to do things like due process or, you know, all these other things that in terms of land seizures that otherwise, you know, full citizens would be kind of um, um, guaranteed in, in the seizure of lands uh, and properties. And it also, as I've made a point, even just last night with the Maine Historical Society, it allows for a category of racialized otherness for the state to really treat Indians as second-class citizens, as um, a racialized group not deserving of a full set of rights and also uh, ignoring, therefore ignoring any of the kind of promises that uh, are embedded in the Articles of Separation, for example, in, in treaties and, and whatnot. So I think, you know, that, I, I feel like that's a little bit of a double-edged sword, perhaps. Uh, I think for the longest time, I've been trying to argue that the Indians not tax is, is a form of recognition of tribal sovereignty. I still believe that, but it also allowed for these other more dubious uh, kinds of actions by the state of Maine that we'd been talking about in the last uh, two sessions. Harold, do you have anything on that? Uh, not much. Yeah, I think I'm going to leave that to Micah, uh, because Micah, uh, as Darren uh, said in the introduction early, I can't believe that there, and Micah has not been called in earlier, and I uh, support that uh, statement. So, Micah, would you like to uh, go, and then maybe I react to that? Yeah, I just wanted to, thanks, Harold, and thank you, Darren and Donna. It's a pleasure to be here, um, and it's good to be talking with all of you. I did want to... Um, perhaps uh, just refer to uh, 1830 uh, meeting between a state official, uh, John Dean, and the priest on Indian Island. Um, and this is on the eve of, of dispossession. While we may talk about that later, it's interesting that John Dean, as well as uh, the priest and Governor John Addian talked about Penobscot status, that they are a distinct tribe, but it's important to, they noted that we're not like the Cherokees, right? So I think it's really important to note, particularly in a larger context, that Penobscots are still living on their homeland and still in contrast to a lot of other Eastern groups of native peoples that were, that resisted uh, Indian removal. Um, Penobscots uh, resisted dispossession, but this is still their land in, in many ways. And I think Maine officials know that. And, and I think that that's really important and that's to, to keep in mind here. Yeah, if I may comment on uh, Micah's last comments, who brought up John Dean, but also, quote, the priest, end quote. It was, of course, uh, a Jesuit, uh, Virgil Barber from New Hampshire originally. And Virgil Barber is one of those extraordinary, interesting man who pops up in Maine history quite briefly, 
but extraordinarily importantly, because he was a Jesuit who was actually originally an Episcopalian. He was a convert and joined the Jesuit order and later ended up at Georgetown University, a Jesuit institution, as many people know. And his eloquence in the rebuttal of John Dean makes Virgil Barber uh, the kind of person who the state of Maine was becoming afraid of. And there's a reason why he vanishes quite quickly after his appearance in Maine, because he was capable of, as a Dartmouth College educated Episcopalian priest, highly educated, was recognized by John Dean and his adversaries while he was speaking on behalf of the Penobscot Nation, in particular John Adian, the governor. Uh, he became a thorn in the side of the state of Maine's agents, the Indian agents, and John Dean uh, himself was a former legislator, first for Massachusetts and later uh, the state of Maine, just before he was appointed as the agent for the state of Maine, which is not the same thing as the Indian agent. He was not an Indian agent. He was just an agent for the state of Maine. And his brief was really um, uh, focused on the boundary issue that I brought up in an earlier conversation, namely the disputed northeastern boundary. And um, John Dean was uh, educated at Brown University. So you have well-educated people who are proxies, one for the state of Maine, in the case of John Dean, and the other one in the case of Virgil Barber as a Jesuit, uh, as a proxy really for Governor Adian, whose com command of the English language was insufficient to create these kind of um, arguments against these highly educated lawyers who were perpetually sent on the pathway of the native peoples. So this is an episode as uh, Micah, I think I'm glad he, he, I am glad that he brought up the name of John Dean. And I know uh, Donna, that he is also on your radar um, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I think uh, probably since uh, Micah brought that up, we might just uh, talk about the, uh, the John Dean uh, letter that was written. And I believe uh, Harold, you, uh, transcribe that letter. Do you want to talk a little bit about what he says in that letter? It's, it's a report. Yeah, I, I can briefly, I will make it very brief. Um, sure. He was commissioned by the, um, the state of Maine to, in essence, uh, negotiate two of the four remaining townships uh, that were in the possession of the Penobscot nation. And he was, of those two, he was primarily interested only in the eastern one. He didn't really care about the one on the west side of the, of the river. And the reason for that was there was a road had been built from where is now Milford uh, that crossed into um, where now is uh, Greenbush up to Lincoln, all names that later were attached to these places uh, through Madawaska and then across where now is Arusta County uh, toward Holton. And so the Northeastern boundary uh, issue that um, had been arbitrated by the King of the Netherlands in 1827, but which was rejected by uh, the state of Maine. Uh, and they kind of uh, made a scathing comments about uh, that uh, there was a silly way of arbitrating. Well, the reason was quote silly was it was an effort to arbitrate between Great Britain that was in charge of um, what we now call Canada collectively as opposed to the state of Maine, where that boundary was located. And later John Dean, after he's trying to pressure the Penobscot nation into selling the two townships, one of which had really mattered to him, which was the Eastern one that included Madawaska, not only the 
the, the river of the Marwankag River. But importantly, that's exactly where uh, Governor uh, Adian was living. He had a farm there on that point. And he had also an eelweir. Um, Micah knows a lot about it because that eelweir shows up on the treaty map that uh, Joseph Treat made um, as he was guided by um, Lieutenant Governor um, John Neptune. And there was a tavern on that, um, on that, uh, it was a ferry at the time, the bridge had not yet been built. Uh, there was a tavern there and that tavern operated with permission of the Penobscot nation. So it was a lot of tension about the so-called military road, which is an apt name, the military road that went to the strongholds in Holton and then Mars Hill and beyond that it was all disputed. So there was an access road for artillery uh, amongst others and other kind of uh, issues. So that road was strategically extremely important because it led into disputed territory whereby the, um, the Penobscot nation occupied a block of land, in this case, the, 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 the eastern town, that eastern township of Madawaska, uh, sorry, not Madawaska, of Madawankeg. So the state of Maine wanted it to settle, but as later the tribe responds, you already have plenty of land to settle they realized there was another game going on and it was a military strategic uh, game that had really to do with what led them to the bloodless Aroostook War of 1839 that was settled, out of, um, settled then in the 1842 Webster-Ashburton Treaty. So it's a fascinating way in which the indigenous history of the Wabanaki nation intersects with an international dispute with an old foe of the American Republic, namely uh, Great Britain. So that, that township the Eastern Township. Now that was a, of a military importance because of the boundaries that uh, was a, who was fighting over that? Great Britain and the, uh, the American uh, government? Yeah, that harkens back to the War of 1812 uh, that was settled in 1814 with the Treaty of Ghent. And Ghent, uh, or as we pronounce it, Ghent in, uh, for Americans, uh, is in what's now called uh, Belgium, but in that time was still part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. So a lot of people don't realize what Treaty of Ghent uh, of 1814 that ended the War of 1812, whereby the British had basically uh, reclaimed the territory east of the Penobscot River. So it became a brief strange moment uh, that was in 1815, they pushed back to the St. Croix. Uh, but the King of the Netherlands, uh, in the, when the Treaty of Ghent was um, concluded, he was still king, the King of the Netherlands was still um, king of what we now call Belgium in 1827, uh, when, Dean, uh, when, when that arbitration was made, and that stopped in 1833. So Belgium became an independent country separate from the Netherlands uh, in, uh, after the, um, the campaign of 1830-1833. So then Belgium, the southern Netherlands, became an independent country. But that's the reason why the Dutch king is popping up suddenly in the history of Maine. So when, when Maine became a state, within uh, how long, Micah, did they decide to send a survey crew to survey the, the islands? And what specifically were they looking for when they did that? So... Maine became a state, um, as you know, under the Missouri Compromise of 1820, specifically in, in March of 1820. And I think it's noteworthy to add that the new state of Maine actually reached out to the Penobscot nation to enter into a treaty negotiation uh, that summer. So the summer of 1820 for the Penobscot 
nation to recognize this new entity called Maine. But and in fact, it already had occurred. The state was already a new state uh, in the United States. And there was a treaty transaction in 1820 between the new state of Maine and the Penobscot nation. Very similar to Wabanaki uh, decorum, uh, tribal leaders met uh, in downtown Bangor, uh, as well as state officials also went up to Old Town Island uh, to meet. So this is kind of a large Wabanaki protocol that's still being carried out in 1820. Penobscot officials are still speaking in Penobscot and it's being translated uh, into English for uh, state officials. And I think this treaty is really important in the sense that for the Penobscots, it rearticulates their land holdings for the new state of Maine. And that is by 1820, um, the Penobscots have retained their rights uh, to the river islands uh, in the Penobscot River, uh, as well as retaining the four upper townships created in 1818, as well as a small landlot in downtown Brewer, Maine. So I think even though that these land holdings have not changed from 1818, I think from a Penobscot perspective to reiterate to this new entity called Maine of our land holdings, I think is pretty significant. Right, but the, they had their eyes on the islands and they uh, sent Treat to survey, but he, he surveyed beyond the islands, right? He went into what's the Millinocket Territory and uh, right. Todden way further north. And so what was he looking for when he was doing that? He was surveying uh, lands that hopefully Maine would acquire, right? So as Harold Prince mentioned, you know, most of Northern Maine was a disputed territory at this time and Maine was a state. So to have a, a state in the United States with, with the boundary undecided was a risk, right? And so Maine was really paranoid in trying to learn about potential lands that it could acquire. And so they commissioned Joseph Treat to survey these lands. And he brought probably one of the most uh, expert uh, guides with him that was Lieutenant Governor John Neptune. And I think it's important by looking at his maps, we really kind of get a Penobscot perspective, right? And, and I tried to make a case elsewhere that uh, Neptune really entered into a Penobscot realm where Penobscot behavior and values were critical. Um, and one of the ways in which we can see that is the emphasis on water, right? Um, knowing which way to perhaps paddle around a particular island to avoid the rips on the other side or to note where these uh, eelwares are located on the Penobscot or even Mattawamkeag rivers, I think is, is pretty significant. And I think the American eel was really important for Penobscot fishers in particularly because they were catadromous fish. So they had the opposite life cycle as salmon shad now wives. So they're, they're spawning in the fall, right? Which is kind of a crucial time for, to transition into the winter hunt. So Darren, you look like you wanted to say some things there. Oh no, I, I well, I mean, First of all, that's a, I was agreeing. I mean, I find uh, Micah's um, edited um, 
volume about the treat uh, survey, um, a really uh, interesting uh, document. Uh, well done, uh, Micah, as always. But also, you know, I mean, that book wouldn't wouldn't exist without the, the Penobscot Nation uh, Cultural and Historic Preservation Department uh, with Micah. And um, the maps are really interesting how native and non-native um, uh, uh, homes are, are identified. It's very interesting uh, in terms of like little teepees and little, you know, anyway, the, it, it's, it's, it's worth sort of thinking like how they were trying to denote <laughs> yeah, the, the, the spaces that um, are largely Wabanaki, right? W largely Penobscot. I mean, this is one of the things you get from reading uh, that uh, survey and 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 Micah's excellent framing of it is that you know outside of places like Bangor uh, and, and mostly coastal regions, 1820 in what is now Maine is still by and large Wabanaki space. You know, and I think that I, I think that puts also the this notion that we I I've been driving home that these founders of the state of Maine and their and their um, you know their their gang of <laughs> ne'er do wellers um, are um, uh, you know really seeking this as, as these these are the lands for speculation and they are not um, you know they are not inhabited by uh, Americans Euro Americans uh, by and large and so I just think like you know sometimes people ask that question of historians and I, I generally don't like this question but like tell us what it was like you know in 1820 you know paddling up through I don't know something about that question just irks me but I will say that um, it, it is I mean to, to be put in that moment um, uh, you know the as the 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 the, the, the volume indicates in, in that story of creating the survey, it, it, is, it is a Wabanaki space, first and foremost. And, and, and I think that the, to understand the 19th century, which I think we're talking about in, in, in large, in, uh, large today, is, is to recognize just how, how dramatic the land seizure, uh, habitation, the, the um, heavy extraction of natural resources and cutting of the forest in the state, like how dramatic that is from 1820 to 1900, how dramatically things change. Uh, and that is, um, you know, basically the will to power of the land speculators, right? That is them bringing to force, you know, these really horrible deals for us as Wabanaki people, but bringing to force this sort of, um, you know, replacement <laughs> settler mindset of just erasing the Wabanaki off of this landscape and, and putting in its place something else. Right. So sure, Harold, but I just want to say that I there was more to it than just the military strategic piece. Right. There was there was resources. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it's it's like, you know, and I had mentioned this last time. I mean, it, it's it's an old play by now, but like, you know, "Quote unquote," clearing the wilderness, <laughs> which means cutting down a bunch of old growth trees, uh, and and kind of erasing indigenous land management, and then that clears space for you know Euro American farming, which is a horribly inefficient approach to to farming in our especially our landscape. You know, like this, 
these are about successive and each successive land, you know, first extraction is profits for the speculators and then the sale of the, the lands that are left behind after you cut down all the trees. That's also a profit margin for them. I mean, this just this idea that this is basically building into a series of profit land uh, deals is is just it's the formula uh, for for a settler state to replace. Carol. Yeah, um, as to Micah's um, point earlier and later reiterated by Darren, uh, namely the 1820 uh, treaty map um, that was done, um, uh, guided by John Neptune, uh, but done by Joseph Treat. Um, Joseph Treat was, um, uh, of course, a, a member of the militia. Uh, these were uh, important to, uh, to remember that all these agents and actors uh, are part of a white militia, uh, uh, well-armed, well-trained, um, and on basically a frontier, right? This is not just any militia, like let's say in Lynn, Massachusetts. This is right there to be called out when the British come, like they did in 1812, 1813, you know, to defend the ultimate frontier for, uh, for Maine, which is the Penobscot River. Uh, and then, of course, tried to hold it in St. Croix and then later expanded to north the northeastern boundary, Holton, Mars Hill, and so forth and so forth. So uh, the, the Penobscot people are facing uh, overwhelming odds on every front, right? On the level of the loggers, who out outnumber them by a huge uh, ratio. Um, the, the timber barons, who have plenty of cash, do big, hire their own uh, vigilante groups, which they do. Um, as well as uh, the legislature, as well as the lawyers. So on every level of uh, combat of the Penobscot nation, they are outnumbered, outflanked, outarmed, um, and outwitted uh, in the sense of that the battles are waged in, in the English language. Um, no translations that we know of uh, in writing uh, can be checked. There were oral translations during these treaty negotiations but we have no idea how good or bad these translations were. So we don't really know what the, the, the chiefs and the captains uh, of the tribe, what they signed. Um, we only know they were under duress. Uh, they, they signed it in Bangor, uh, um, which of course by that time was a power center, uh, was emerging to become the lumber capital of the, world, of, the, of, of, of the United States. So there's a staggering pileup of um, intimidating force and the asymmetrical relationship between the Penobscot nation and the state of Maine is overwhelming. It's just amazing. I remember when I first came to Maine and heard about uh, the Wabanaki, I said, how on earth can they still exist given this incredible long saga of genocidal wars, uh, ethnocide um, and internal colonialism, which is uh, one of the subjects that we've also discussed. Back to the treaty very quickly, uh, the treaty map, for your audience, an important piece uh, to know is that the Penobscot community now lives on Indian Island, but at the time of the treaty, uh, that was the ceremonial and political center indeed, but the chief, the governor, Adian, lived at Madawamkeg Point where he was driven out by vigilantes uh, about the time of the John Dean, treaty, uh, John Dean letter and visit in the wake of that. So it was a horrible intimidation by vigilantes, never criminally prosecuted as far as I know, but if you just look at the, um, the islands uh, on that map of 1820, there are 27 islands named, named as such, um, but as total, um, 
number of camps, uh, seasonal encampments, there are 36, three of which are at Madabamkak Point, uh, there are 10 at Old Town Island, there are two at um, another island, the, then another one on island, seven camps, Olamon has one camp, Joe Mary Island, one camp, Poor Joe, two camps, Frazy Lazy's one camp, John Penny has two camps, Pesadunkak, four camps, and Madwamkak, three camps. So here we see, if we just go the, the listing, we see that the whole river stretch is now largely uninhabited, that that was all um, uh, occupied by these seasonal encampments. So the whole sense of being on that river between Old Town and the Forks, right, is a whole different one in terms of um, indigenous occupation known as listed on, the, on, on these uh, maps. And if you had done a map like that five years later, you might see different numbers, different islands. Uh, and if you did it 10 years earlier, it would also be different. So these are not um, stationary uh, residences, uh, but people do have uh, rights to um, uh, encampments uh, that are passed on from family within families from generation to generation, but it's very fluid. So my only point here is that these maps um, are extraordinarily important. Um, and I'm very grateful that when uh, Micah uh, came upon the Joseph Treat material that they turned it in, into his book. And I was actually one of the manuscript reviewers at the time for that book. Uh, and I uh, was very grateful to see a young scholar at that time, Micah is also aged by now, <laughs> but at that time, it was a very important uh, piece. And we now see how important it was that you might not even have envisioned at the time the significance of that of that particular map. It certainly helped me uh, a lot in my own research. So thank you, Micah. So um, I just have a question that's kind of been on my mind for a while. So before the um, um, survey in the 1820s or what of the late 20s, uh, and before the townships were sold, were they already cutting in those areas? Do you know? Yeah, most likely they were because where these logging uh, gangs uh, were penetrated far upriver and the first and the easiest access was anything that was worthwhile timber on the islands and the other ones was uh, on the shores. Uh, then of course they moved deeper inland. Uh, it's suspicious when you look at uh, 18, early 1830s, how quickly sawmills pop up at, at the new, um, newly purchased uh, territories and how, um, so I looked at a lot of these names and almost every one involved is uh, somehow involved with the timber industry. So they either had their eye already on it we do know there was a lot of vigilantes um, going on. And we do also know that a number of these white vigilantes uh, who are getting conflict, not just with the Indian agent trying to represent the Penobscot nation in terms of the land holdings, but also the public lands in the hands of the state of Maine and absentee landowners. And uh, they pay no attention to these loggers. There's a lot of uh, illicit activity going on whereby the white loggers at one point begin to impersonate Indians. They have this kind of fake Indian language um, and they try to make it appear as if uh, they are indigenous themselves. That goes back to an old trope from the uh, Sons of Liberty uh, when Sam Adams and his men raided the tea ships of the king and dressed up as quote Indians. And that little game is going on also in Maine uh, right from the early 1800s into the 18-teens, 1820s, and even into the 1830s. And there's a letter supposedly written by John Napune that is completely suspicious in terms of that 
uh, me make him a hausam and you know he has this kind of crazy endings uh, faking indian speech so that's that was published in one of the newspapers and is mistaken i think for being an authentic indigenous letter i think it's it's a fake indian letter uh, because it's, it falls suspiciously into uh, the white vigilante logging uh, trope uh, as opposed to um, indigenous peoples. That's, those kind of letters would not have appeared. They, they had um, people like Virgil Barber to get actually correct English. I don't know what Micah thinks about it, by the way. You've seen that letter probably, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. So one of the I just wanted to add that one of the pressures that the Penobscot nation was experiencing at this time was this, you know, the Penobscots were concerned about the decline of the, their fisheries, which of course, John Neptune said, you know, we're losing our fisheries because, you know, anadromous fish are not coming up the river anymore. Um, and, and so they were, and he actually laid this out. And the reason why is because there's too many white people, and he, this, the terms that he used, setting up per se nets on the tidewaters. Um, and so these anadromous fish are not getting up to us here on uh, Old Town Island, where for generations and generations, we've always fished on the islands uh, below Old Town, which I think is one of the reasons why Old Town Island or present day Indian Island, the seat of the Penobscot Nation is so important is because of the fisheries uh, in the Old Town Islands. So it seems to me the fisheries were probably totally destroyed. Totally destroyed. Yes. Started, you know, setting up booms and, and cutting and, and putting the logs in the river. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I believe it was in 1813, Joseph Butterfield, who was a resident of uh, Orono, uh, which is now downtown Old Town, because Old Town did become a charter town until the 1840s. He said, but by 1813, uh, salmon, shad, and are no longer ascending the Penobscot River to spawn, right? So, uh, but it's interesting to note that in the 1830s, there's a short period of Atlantic salmon uh, returning to the Penobscot River for a short brief time where Penobscot fishers are going out in the river with their compound spears and trying to uh, spear salmon. Um, so in talking to ichthyologists, it seems as though that there are some particularly strong years for migratory fish. And I think there was a short period in the 1830s where these fish did, did return. And of course the Penobscots took advantage of that. But there's also, you know, on these islets below Old Town Island, of these small islands, there are fish smoking shacks where whites are smoking fish. And so it's clear to me uh, that these fish are overly taken in the Penobscot River, uh, particularly at Old Town Falls uh, throughout the 18 early 19th century, 1800s, uh, even past statehood, that the fish do come back. So uh, I think that's important to kind of keep in mind. You know, at this time, John Neptune is also talking about the decline of animals, right? Moose and deer, that they have to go all the way up to the headwaters of the Penobscot and Kennebec rivers to hunt moose and deer. Um, and John Dean basically said, you know, if you, 
if you use your land and cultivate it, this would be one way to make sure that you could provide subsistence. And I'm interested to kind of think about how cultivation is used against the Penobscots because by the mid 1820s, Penobscots are, they have farms on their reservation islands. Uh, Governor John Adian has cornfields at Matawamkeg Point fairly substantial cornfields. So this idea of cultivation, in fact, the Penobscots are saying, you know, we've done this. We've, we have uh, crops on our reservation islands, but when the spring freshets come down the Penobscot River every spring and the water levels um, increase, the increased water levels knocks down their permanent fences that they fence in the crops, allowing adjacent cattle uh, from farms on the mainland to swim across the river and to eat Penobscot crops. So, so this is kind of the local tension on the ground and water that tribes are experiencing. Great. Harold? Yeah, two things uh, as to what was just said. One is that the fish was not just to eat, but also used as fertilizer. So a major component uh, on the, uh, at Indian Island, for example, where you have these uh, food gardens these food gardens were, because uh, uh, Wabanaki did not have uh, pigs or cows or uh, horses for manure. Uh, so they used uh, fish actually uh, to manure the uh, crop, uh, crop fields. So when the fish declines, you also get less fertilizer for the crop, the, 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 the cropland, the, the food gardens. And of course, the other um, contradictory element is uh, with regard to um, the cultivation of the land, as Michael correctly says, yes, they were doing it albeit primarily in terms of food gardens rather than quote farms and only as a part uh, partial uh, food resource uh, because all the other things came through food gathering and hunting and trapping and fishing. But the other one is that um, the uh, treaty of uh, 1818 provided them uh, precisely in the fall of the year with massive amount of corn that was produced primarily in Massachusetts. So you get these 500 bushels of corn, you get the hogshead of pork, you get um, all kind of other uh, meal, uh, flour uh, meal. So you get precisely when they try to settle them down, they unsettle them by giving, giving in the annuities that are due every fall when normally they would have worked in the food gardens to get their, uh, their food supplies for the winter in, in, in stock. Uh, the treaty annuities are formulated to such an extent that they undermine uh, precisely what the state of Maine tries to do, which is settle them down. So you get these kind of crazy contradictory components that all work on the dispossession, the, 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 the destruction of the culture, uh, rupturing the migratory patterns, you name it. The whole thing all goes in cahoots in a weird concoction uh, within which there's little logic, um, but the driving force behind it all is they're going to be extinct anyway within two, three generations. So this is all a makeshift thing as a temporary thing before they perish, because this is exactly the same time that James Fenimore Cooper in 1823 is publishing The Last of the Mohicans. So the whole lore, the whole ideology in, uh, in uh, the American Republic for anyone who is reading at the time, reads books like Jennifer, James Fenimore Cooper's uh, Leatherstocking Tales where you get that, that story about the last of the Mohicans, but also the last of the Wampanoag, the last of whatever. So anybody who's looking at Maine, you know, doesn't, is, is not a stretch to start saying the last of the Penobscot, right? They're all expecting the end of times for 
a prehistoric creature, which is really not part of 19th century progress, they are bound to be behind. And then you get the racializing that, um, that Darren earlier referred to, is the racialization of ethnic uh, inferiority, right? And here you get that racism uh, 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 doctrine that basically dooms the, the Penobscot and other indigenous peoples to extinction because they are inherently incapable of civilization. And that plays into what Micah was referring briefly to, it was the Indian Removal Act, exactly the same period, 1830, Indian Removal Act. So all the Indians from uh, east of the Mississippi, all gonna be transferred to west of the Mississippi and the Missouri. And that's where they can live out their days, uh, hunting buffalo until the buffalo is gone and they all will perish. And then you will have from shining sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific and white uh, controlled um, continent. Okay, so we've got about I don't know now, I lost track of time, but <laughs> I think that uh, we should kind of wind up and just say what we want to say. I'll start with uh, uh, Darren. Great, thanks, Donna. Um, <clears throat> I, I mean, I think, you know, as we move through the 19th century, uh, the, the uh, you know, the things that uh, Micah and, 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 and Harold have been talking about um, in, in great, specificity uh, are, you know, just come to bear in, in extraordinary ways. I, I, I want to say, um, uh, come to see, I, it's not just uh, Harold, um, come to bear in extraordinary ways the, the, during the 19th century, the, the, these pressures, but also, you know, kind of want to answer the question like how how did Penobscot survive you know in in, in, a, in essence because um you know our agency through this history and the shaping and reshaping of these discourses right I mean the idea that you know they're telling us to cultivate we're cultivating but they're <laughs> not the way they want or or not in in and that's also an old trope to sort of displace people and displace indigenous people is that they're not farming the right way and not working the land the right way like christians do um so i think you know our survival as as penobscot and as wabanaki people uh largely, um, you know, maintaining our connection in relation to place and in and, 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 and that uh, the, our culture connected to places, even as they're dramatically changing, um, that, our, that our ability to kind of maintain those connections and feed ourselves and maintain community and um, all those things that our agency um, and our diplomacies, right? You know, dealing with basically gangs that 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 Harold has talked about, um, and and state the state encouraging these sort of uh, violent attacks. That our collectivity together and our our knowledge of our our river and the ecosystem it is the root of our survival, and and it will be uh, in, into well, you know, forever. You know, I think our connections. Uh, are are this uh, are the roots of why we still exist and um, yeah I just want to kind of put that out there as things get grim in the 19th century but our our connection to each other and uh, uh, and I include other Wabanaki communities as well um, are the roots of of why we continue to um, be a, a a very strong in my opinion <laughs> tribal nation. Micah. I just would like to um, make sure that our listeners know that the uh, sale of the upper four townships in 1833 was 
it's often referred to as a fraudulent sale by Penobscot petitioners after this uh, questionable deed uh, was signed. Um, in one report, uh, they said that John Neptune wasn't even on Old Town Island when the deed was uh, apparently signed. So there's a lot of question about the integrity and good faith that this deed was made. And Penobscot's continue to petition uh, the state of Maine, uh, saying that this was a fraudulent sale. Sometimes they refer to it as the so-called sale of our townships. And even in the 1840s, um, Penobscots are saying that, you know, if we can't get our land back, we should at least get the money from the standing timber. And even though that our timber burned in 1825, it just simply scorched the pine trees and that we should have money from our timber. So this remains a really uh, hotly contended uh, issue. Um, but one of the things that I'm always impressed with, and I think this kind of builds off of some of Darren's points earlier, is that you know Penobscot leaders are quite savvy in the sense that they use government entities, practices like petitioning to really assert uh, their claim and that they know that they're making a large amount of paper work that's conveying their concerns as evidence. So, so Micah, um, tell us about the significance, of, as you see it, of those, uh, four, of those four townships to the Penobscot. Sure. So the four upper townships were created in 1818 uh, with a treaty with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the Penobscot Nation. There are two townships around Mattawam Cake Point. So there's one at Mattawam Cake Point where the river flows in uh, to the Penobscot River. Um, and there's ones adjacent to that. So those are the first two townships, number one and two. Um, and the Mattawam Cake Point is significant, uh, I think, because the people worked hard to retain that area because of the significance of the village site right there at the confluence of the Mattawam Cake River and the Penobscot River. The other two townships are to the northwest of Mattawam Cake Point, um, near present-day Millinocket, Maine. And those two townships provided easy lake access to the interior hunting region. So I think that that's really uh, important. And if you keep in mind at this time um, that it was very difficult for Wabanaki people in Maine to hunt and trap in what was then uh, British North America, in, in part because the Hudson Bay Company was creating a monopoly over the fur trade business. So when John Neptune uh, went up to Quebec, he was uh, caught and reprimanded by uh, HBC men. So to secure this interior uh, wildland uh, was really important for the survival of the Penobscots. When the state tried to wrestle these four townships away from the Penobscot tribe, um, Penobscot leaders met with missionary Barber in November of 1829. And Barber relayed this message to John Dean. And in the letter, which is quite fascinating, really reflects Penobscot concerns at the time. Um, Barber wrote, quote, the white people have repeatedly asked us to dispose of our lands and we have sold to them one portion after another till we have very little left. The prospect is that in two or three generations, there will not be enough 
of land for our children. To us, this looks strange that white people, knowing this, should ask us to sell nearly half of what we have left, when at the same time they have in this state so many thousands of acres of wild land. If so great and so free a country as this would exterminate us, we have no chance anywhere else. We or our children must sooner or later be driven into the salt water and perish." End quote. So that was a quote in a letter from, uh, was it, it was the missionary, right? The Jesuit? Yeah, Virgil Barber. Right. To John Dean in November of 1829. So this is at a time when the state of Maine is really applying pressure to the Penobscot nation to sell these four upper townships. Right. And, I think and, it expresses a concern of the, of the Penobscots that, you know, enough's enough. Right, and so I guess that uh, the fact that they were trying, they had tried, they held on to those four townships since what, 1794. Uh, <clears throat> I think they saw them as a mechanism for survival, you know, where they could where they could go and hunt and just not not be bothered, just to, you know, get their game and do whatever they needed to to do to survive. Uh, Absolutely. So, and I think that that quote. Uh, is is a great uh, uh, theme or, or uh, a great example of what they were thinking. Um, and uh, also the townships on, um, what is it, Mattawamkeag River, right? Uh, that river, it, it surprised me to see how long, how far reaching that river is. So that was sort of like, that's sort of like a, a branch out into the Eastern part of Maine, way almost to the ocean. Uh, so uh, it, it does make sense that they'd want their villages there. Absolutely. And you know, the Mattawamkeag River is on one of the most famous canoe routes and portaging between Penobscot homeland, Passamaquoddy homeland, and even Maliseet homeland. So that was the, the highway of travel uh, in the 19th century. And of course, Wabanakis were at advantage because of their skills of using and paddling and making birch bark canoes. Yeah, I mean, I, I had no idea how, you know, I just saw the, the, I was looking at the map and I saw it and I thought, hmm, I think I'm just gonna trace this to see where it goes. And I was, I was amazed. Yeah. Uh, and, and you wonder, you know, how, how could they have gotten to the ocean from Penobscot, you know, the river and where they were all across it, you could always go down the southern route, you know, right down to the to the bay. But then to see this route going across to, to Eastern Maine, and, and you think, you know, and there's like stories about how the Penobscots would canoe to, uh, to Pleasant Point and they would meet, uh, not, not Pleasant Point, I'm sorry, a township or Peter Dana uh, to meet the, the the tribes there and, and think that's probably the route that they took to do that absolutely so um yeah so that those villages were made sense that they were right in the center the core uh in indian island the lower uh home village sort of like made a little less sense for that yeah and uh the other thing that I, comes to my mind is uh, that 
Orson Island, which is huge, you know, and you wonder, well, why didn't they settle Orson Island? Why did they just settle Indian Island? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Any insight into that? <laughs> so um, I think Orson Island was and is uh, really significant. Um, I know that um, when the railroad was built across Orson Island, Penobscots petitioned the state against it. And they complained that the railroad broke up a really important deer yard where Penobscot hunters would actually just go over to Orson Island in the winter time and dispatch a deer over there. It was really easy for deer hunting. So I know that that was one of the youth. Um, John Neptune lived over there. John Neptune's father was also living on Orson Island. Yep. And didn't they use that for the uh, community or the, the farming gardens and stuff too? Wasn't that where those were located? Yes, there was a public farm over there in the 19th century. Um, and I've talked to community members and they think that they know where the the cellar is from the farm. There, there was a root cellar over there. Um, and you know, it, it is, um, if you look at it at a topographical map, uh, there is some wetlands there too, um, that I think are probably really rich habitats for um, not only hunting, but also gathering. And I wonder about plant medicine. Yeah. So, I mean, when you really think about it, the, the river was, you know, their, their life, their life uh, blood. I mean, they're, the fact that they, they used herbs and, and they got their fish and their food from that river. And they, it was their I-95 highway, sort of. Most certainly was. Yeah. And then they have, I'm just thinking, you know, with all of those sawmills that just popped up in the 18, what Harold was saying, what, 1813 or whatever, yeah. it just popped up uh, all of a sudden. And then uh, when they really started throwing logs in that river, uh, you know, I've seen pictures of uh, shore to shore full of logs. Nothing could survive that stuff. Absolutely. And in fact, I wonder what it was like to canoe in a birch bark canoe in the Penobscot River surrounded by those large logs. And I don't think you could. I don't yes, think you could. In fact, Have you seen pictures of that? Yes, the Penobscot Nation actually petitioned uh, against the fact that their boat landing, which I think is where the boat landing is today on Indian Island, got full of logs, that they couldn't land their birch bark canoes because the boat landing was jam packed with logs. Right, well, so. good point. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so uh, thanks for explaining all that stuff. Sure. Harold? Yes, um, we talked about John Dean, um, uh, who came uh, in 1829 to uh, Indian Island uh, to try to force the Penobscot or pressure the Penobscot into selling the two townships, two of the four. Uh, there's an important um, uh, law that was passed two years earlier, and you made reference to that uh, earlier, Donna. And I'm quoting, the legislature having the custody of all the property of the Indians, it remains for them, the legislature, to designate how it shall be expended. And um, uh, later it's uh, written in the register of the council uh, for um, uh, on Indian affairs in, um, in, uh, in 1830, just when the John, Leder, uh, John Dean letter is, um, is, uh, is uh, written, 
um, while the wishes of the Indians are generally to be consulted when practicable, yet the very fact that they are under the guardianship of the state and the care of a public agent presupposes them to be bound by and to the doings of the agent in some other things nevertheless. So here you begin to see the internal colonialism that we talked about before that comes aggressively to the fore when the state of Maine takes over from Massachusetts its um, treaty obligations to, toward the Penobscot and how they perpetually play shenanigans. What we can clearly see when John Dean is creating the map uh, in 1840, based on his 1838 expedition to the northeastern boundary, you see an incredible wishful thinking going on in terms of where the boundary exactly is, which is way more than, uh, than later is agreed upon. But that same attitude also pertains to the Penobscot, but they don't have the lawyers to defend themselves, where the British have their own um, very sophisticated agents in terms of holding the line in terms of where the boundary is. So the whole thing, again, is it's a symmetrical relationship with Great Britain. It's an asymmetrical relationship with the Penobscot nation and the, and the state of Maine runs roughshod over all concerns repeatedly and overwhelmingly. Okay, so we're gonna to have to end it there. We didn't get to where I wanted to get to, but we will uh, the next show. Looks like we're gonna have a lot more shows. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I uh, uh, thank you guys for uh, being on the show and uh, thank my audience for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Abenaki Windows. Again, I want to thank Professors Harold Prince, Dan Ranko, Micah Pauling uh, for being on the show. And the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from the CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart, WMPG, and Joel Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>